Welcome to Broad Appeal, the podcast that looks back at female-driven films from the not-so-distant past. I'm Sean. And I'm Brian. How you doing, Brian? I'm really great, Sean. How about you? Super, as always. <laughs> so, today's film is What's Love Got To Do With It, directed by Brian Gibson. But you know what? The director is irrelevant. Brian Gibson? Was that Debbie Gibson's cousin? Debbie Gibson's father. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean... It is a it is a musical film. It was a it's a musical film. He got the idea for this film while he was making Poltergeist two. Wait, are you serious? No, but he did make he did make the Brian. Film. G- so the same person who made What's Love Got to Do with It also made Poltergeist two. Yeah, and he also made something called the Josephine Baker story, which I don't know anything about. Oh my god, you see is that a person you who see, lived, folks. This is sp- Josephine Baker. Yes. Jo- <laughs> Should we start this again? No, like let's this? keep going. <laughs> jo- Sorry, guys. Josephine Baker, the great, the great black American entertainer of the uh, of the twenties and thirties, who uh, was famous for performing mostly nude. So I'm going to piece together the history of this. I'm going to say that after the su- after the success of the Josephine Baker story, someone said, "Let's get this Brian Gibson guy to make this movie." Oh, okay. So basically he was saying, "This guy's made one film which is about a black female entertainer. He could make another film about a black female entertainer." That's your that's your theory. I I want to be proven to, I want to be proven wrong. That's the unified theory of Just Brian wrong, Gibson. <laughs> um Great. And, and of course, What's Love Got to Do With It is about a black female musical artist from a very different decade. Tina Turner. Tina Turner. Now, Brian, I have a little bit of research done about this movie. But compared to some of the things we've done on Broad Appeal, I've kept it a relatively blank slate because I've seen this film twice. And for the first time in the history of this podcast so far... I think we're going to end the podcast both enjoying this film. Okay, now don't... Well, first of all, this is only like the third episode. Yeah, but... But don't don't, uh, build up too high an expectation. Although I I do tend to agree with you. I have to say, like, what's love got to do with it um, is one of the big gaps in in my 90s film going uh, roster. You know, basically... So why didn't you see it then? Why didn't I see it at the time? Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, obviously it was a film from 1993, the Anus Mirabilis of the early 90s, where basically everyone's saying, you know, every movie that came out in this particular year was incredible. Schindler's List obviously dominated the Oscars, but, you know, there were many, many other wonderful movies, particularly movies with great lead female roles. And who is the lead female role in this film? Well, it is, um, my... Yale sister. <laughs> Brian, you went to Yale? You, you never mentioned that. <laughs> Angela Bassett. Angela Bassett. Um, you know, the, the titular Stella of how Stella got her groove back. The, the serious actress within Waiting to Exhale. Basically, as far as I know, what's I've got to do with it is, is the film that kind of launched Angela Bassett, really got her onto the map. Am I right about that? Yeah, She'd been it, in... She'd been in Malcolm X, maybe, as, as Betty Shabazz, I think. Well, this, was, this film launched her so much that the only way you could really go after this is down, which I think is something that suffered, uh, which Angela Bassett suffered in her career. And um, this film really is a standout moment for her. Unfortunately, like many of the actresses who may feature on this podcast, the present, or back then the future, wasn't as uh, 
kind to her as it could have been with her talents. But is it fair to say, Sean, that I think in Angela Bassett's case, this is an even more criminal offence, which, dare we say it, has something to do with Hollywood's racism? Oh, yeah. I mean... Obviously, as I said, I didn't see what's love got to do with it, but she got an Oscar nomination. She really kind of blew up basically out of nowhere. I think she'd been working, you know, in the theater and in film for years, but this was her big breakthrough role. She got an Oscar nomination. She won the Golden Globe. Then she was in those Terry McMillan movies that I already named, which were big hits, you know, Stella and Waiting to Exhale. So she had both critical acclaim. She was box office success. And I think, you know... Viola Davis is maybe repeating this um, this trajectory where Hollywood just doesn't know what to do with a powerful, talented, talented black leading lady. Absolutely, I agree. Brian, you know the Oscars inside out. Who were the other women up for Best Actress in this year? Uh, Sean, this is like a... This is a softball pitch. I, this is this the is one a cavalcade <laughs> of talents. Stockard Channing in Six Degrees of Separation, Emma Thompson in The Remains of the Day, Deborah Winger in Shadowlands, and the winner Holly Hunter in The Piano. So you know, um, there's some heavy hitting competition there. But I think, from what I know of Angela Bassett, did she do her own singing in this movie? Um, yeah, I think so. Really? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, she obviously, she did win the Golden Globe, I think, yeah? She absolutely did. And, you know, uh, this was really setting her up, I think, for a fantastic Hollywood career. Um, and I'm sure a lot of Oscar voters probably thought to themselves, oh, you know, Holly Hunter played a deaf mute. <laughs> you know, we want to give and, this to and her. And Angela Bassett played Tina Turner. <laughs> yeah, no, but I'm saying, like, we'll give this to her. Let's wait till Angela Bassett, like, returns with her next nomination. And she'll clearly, you know, win the win the big prize then. And it just, it never came to be. I, I mean, famously, right, she turned down Halle Berry's part in Monster's Ball. Because? She said, I mean, I don't know the exact quote, but she said something like, I don't play a whore or something. I don't want to play a whore. She says that that, that it's a degrading role or something. Yeah, and it is. I mean... I've I've actually never seen it. This is off the subject, but... Season two, maybe? Maybe. No, I don't don't ever want to need to be subjected to Monster's Ball again. But um, trying to envision Angela Bassett in such a passive and kind of misogynistic, frankly, role as Monster's Ball is, like, inconceivable. You know, and I think what happened, as far as I can tell with Angela Bassett, is that she is, she's very strong. She's a very powerful female presence. So she sort of kept showing up for a while in things like, you know, isn't she, like, the senator in contact who, like, wants to stop the space program or something? And she's I like, hope she was the senator who funded the space program. <laughs> no, she's always, like, slightly critical of things in, in her kind of supporting roles. Like, isn't she the principal in... Uh, music of the heart. Oh, yeah, isn't she? Yeah, you know she is. I know she is, but I'm trying to remember yeah. what her function and is. And she's in the also plot. witchy on American uh, Horror Story. Yeah, so the diva machine. Angela Bassett. I was saying before when when we were getting ready to record, like you could totally see her as Michelle Obama because in the same way that Michelle Obama, strong could, arms. Yeah, that kind of. She's a fierce woman in, yeah. in all the best ways. And this is a fierce role. Can we talk about the movie for a little bit? Of course we can. So this is, in many ways, a standard biopic. It starts as a chi- in childhood and it ends in adulthood. Really? Yeah. 
I was hoping it was going to be one of these more focused biopics. No, no, I was just saying it starts in childhood and then it quickly moves on to adulthood. It's focused, more importantly, on the time where Ike Turner made her Tina Turner from anime, anime Bullock to Tina Turner. Okay. Um, can I say, um, in addition to not having seen the film, I really don't know that much about Tina Turner. Like, I know her biggest tunes, but, like, in terms of her personality... I really am a blank. Did she grow up in somewhere called like Nutbush or something? No, like? that's a song she sang. <laughs> what is that song? Isn't that isn't that a district? <laughs> a district of what? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but if if I can a if, district. If I can speak about the film for a moment. Yes. The one thing I will reveal to you is that um, I mean, all biopics take liberties. This is based on a book by Tina Turner, but this film takes a lot of liberties with time, going backwards, forwards, names, whatever. I will tell... Uh, actually, yeah, I will tell you. There's a character in this movie who is just not real. A fictional construct. A fictional construct, which is a, a trope in, in biopics, but this person never existed. They're a composite character. Should I try to guess who it is when we watch? <laughs> yeah, okay. Is it played by Paul Giamatti? That's a guess. I know it's not. Giamatti? Giamatti. Oh, Giamatti. No, I no. just He seems like the kind of person who would play a composite character. Is he in this? No, he's not. All right. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, maybe he is. I mean, maybe Wayne Knight's in it, for all we know. Well, yeah, that's quite possible at this stage. <laughs> so this is a, a this is a musical in the sense that it's it's uh, punctuated by musical numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very much part of the narrative of the film, which is why it's so enjoyable. Um, you think this movie is enjoyable? No, I do think it's hugely enjoyable, yeah. You know, I think, because you asked me before, why didn't I go to see this? I have a feeling... That I probably thought it was going to be quite dark because it's about domestic violence. Well, this is a funny thing. It's like, I mean, how many biopics do you know that are about people not only who are alive, but it were in a really big point in their career? I mean, because Tina Turner wasn't washed up. She wasn't dead. She wasn't anything. You know, she was Tina Turner. And I always kind of think it's funny when these movies come out and they're placed literally alongside the living person's life. I mean, what other examples can you think of? Uh, well, I mean, she certainly wasn't at the height of her career, right? She was kind of already in that sort of legend status. Um, I'm not sure I can think of another example. Well, isn't Raging Bull kind of one of the similar things? Oh, The Blind Side. <laughs> yes, of course. Erin Brockovich, then, yeah. if we're going with that. No, but but they were never, the, they were kind of made famous not, by the movies. They're not celebrities. Yeah, they're just sort of average people. But, but what I'm saying is, like, I remember this movie being publicized at the time as being a kind of searing portrait of a, you know, really violent, abusive relationship between Ike and Tina. And we haven't mentioned Lawrence No, Fishburne. we haven't mentioned him at all. So the two Oscar nominations this film got were for Best Actor and Best Actress. You've already mentioned Best Actress. Brian, can you remember who is up for Best Actor that year? Um, it would have been, let's see, Daniel Day-Lewis in The Name of the Father, Tom Hanks, who won for Philadelphia, um, Lawrence Fishburne, Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins remains of the day. And then, who is the fifth one? That's, oh, Liam Neeson, Schindler's List. Oh, as, yes. As the titular Schindler. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, 1993 is kind of that year that, I don't know, it's like when I woke up. It stands out, doesn't it? Yeah, it was my, it was my Katie Lang year. I need to wake up. But, um. <laughs> that wasn't her. Who was that it? Melissa, Melissa Etheridge. Etheridge. Oh, Sorry. Got my lesbian rockers <laughs> confused. We're really going off the deep end on this. I'm really excited to see what's love got to do yeah. with it. And you know what? I'm going to say that they both deserve the Oscars and they were both robbed. Are you serious? I, 
You'll see, Brian, because it's not easy to play a horrible, abusive man and give him depth of character. And I think it's something that Lawrence Fishburne did very well. And you know what? I'm a little bit younger than you are. I was unfortunately introduced to Lawrence Fishburne through The Matrix, in which I thought, this man has no... I mean, not that that role gave him much acting ability in the first place, but Lawrence Fishburne was just some guy who espoused pseudo-philosophy in, you know, to Keanu Reeves. And when I saw this film, it gave me so much more respect for him. And I think in many ways he suffered the same problem that Angela Bassett had, which was you take a very talented, very credible actor, you may put him in a big movie franchise, but you don't give him anything to do. Has he done the Tyler Perry thing? No. Has she? Definitely. Oh, I think no. she's in that one with Kathy Bates. The Kathy family- Bates? Is yeah. One. Yes, the family can that we do a Can we do a Tyler Perry film on this uh, it wouldn't be the nineties. We'd have to we'd have to move on to uh to the twenty first century, I think. Oh no. Um Oh no. Yeah, I would like to do um that what's that one with Taraji P. Henson? I've never seen a Tyler Perry movie. What do I no, know? You, you haven't. No, I haven't, have you? Diary of a Mad Black Woman? I, I wrote Medea it. goes to J- Sean. <laughs> <laughs> We're leaving surrealism behind <laughs> and now I, is it should we just watch this movie? I'm like bouncing out of my yeah, chair. Yeah, I'm looking I'm honestly really looking forward to watching this. I knew I also was looking forward to watching Basic Instinct and halfway through I uh, changed my opinion, but I think you're going to love it, Brian. All right, here we go. Okay, we're optimistic. We'll, All right. We'll see you after the break. Every now and then, I think you might like to hear something from us, nice and easy. But there's just one thing. You see, we never, ever do nothing nice and easy. We always do it nice and rough. But we'll take the beginning of this song and do it easy. But then we're going to do the finish. Rough. That's the way we do. Credence Clearwater's Proud Men. And we're rolling. Rolling. Rolling on the river. Listen to the song. Left a good job in the city. Working for the man every night and day. And I never lost one minute of sleep And I was worried about the way the thing might have been They will keep on turning Primary keep on Okay, so we've just finished watching What's Love Got To Do With It, and Brian, I'm keen to know what you thought of the film. Wow. It was both everything I expected it to be, and not at the same time. This seemed like a really bifurcated movie, so I guess the way to say that is, what did I expect it to be? I expected it to be searing, well-acted scenes of domestic abuse by two actors at the top of their game. It was definitely that. And yet, the first image that I saw when the movie began was uh, 
white title on the screen with the name of a Buddhist chant <laughs> and some odd poetry about lotuses growing out of the mud. And I thought to myself, have we actually put the wrong movie in the DVD here? I was going to say, it starts like, it, it starts uh, in, the, in that kind of fashion that so many of those uh, biopics do, where you see already in infancy, practical infancy, this, this spunky, you know, big-voiced energetic um, star in the making. Yeah, basically a little girl who's demonstrating all the qualities that we'll come to see as Tina Turner and she has a searing event which is kind of the Freudian scene that describes everything else. She kind of comes home and discovers that her mother has abandoned her and she's raised by her grandmother. And I was kind of thinking to myself, oh God, this is Ray with Jamie Foxx. This is going to be this by-the-numbers thing where every psychological beat is spelled out. And I'm not going to say that the movie um, doesn't fall into that trap at various points as it goes on. When then suddenly there'll be these incredible scenes from these two actors. And I don't just mean the scenes of domestic abuse and psychological kind of manipulation. Also the musical numbers. Yeah. I said in the first half that this is um, an example of kind of a rock biopic that has well-punctuated musical numbers because, honestly, every... You know, this is my opinion. Every musical interlude is used both for dramatic purpose and it also gives an insight into the psychology of the characters and moves the plot along. Yeah, absolutely. So just a kind of... I mean, probably we don't need to belabor the plot, but Anime Bullock is this... Young girl from where, Sean? From Nutbush, Tennessee. Nutbush, Tennessee. My memory wasn't totally wrong. Uh, So she's abandoned by her mother. She's raised by her grandmother. And then um, we kind of jump really fast. Really fast. Angela Bassett takes over in the kind of late 50s, early 60s, doesn't it? Yeah. Very soon after that, basically on the first night that she shows up at her mom's place in St. Louis, she meets Ike Turner, or she sees him perform. Very soon after that, she's kind of picked, plucked from obscurity to uh, sing with him on stage, yeah. and then soon after that, they're they're touring together, and she becomes his main squeeze while his previous girlfriend goes off the rails. What's that woman's name? Um, Lorraine. Lorraine. Yeah, Lorraine, Lorraine was a, a but, kind of harbinger of psychological torment to come. And this was, to me, like, where the movie... Uh, I called it the Guitar of Doom, no, didn't I? Yeah, you called it the Guitar of Doom, and I we have different opinions about this. It this... So explain what the guitar of doom is. Okay, so it's I think it's both a quite quite a nineties trope, but also uh, you know to to show a bit of influence of the music of the time. The guitar of doom is this kind of chilling, menacing, echoey guitar that is used to underline um, uh, threat and danger yeah. and and pathos and pain. I actually really like it. Okay, I mean it. It first comes in in that scene where the young girl sees that her mother's leaving. We hear this kind of. It's out of period, sort of rock guitar, kind of twangling away. Electric, and, yeah, rock electric guitar. Yeah, and then it kind of comes again when um, Ike Turner's jilted lover sort of comes to threaten young anime, who's his new lover. I mean, basically, it's telling us, uh-oh, this rosy um, kind of burgeoning romance and career. Watch out, girl. There's some bad stuff going to happen. And I think that was the parts that I thought to myself, okay, this feels like it's a bit by the numbers, some of the psychology. But um, the musical numbers do really sell character. Um, And it's interesting because, like, to me, the image of Tina Turner is so 
tough. She's muscular. She's physical. Her voice, as they keep emphasizing, sounds like a man. Yeah, Ike says, you know, you're you're a woman, but you've you got the voice like a man. Yeah, and they keep talking about how rough her voice yeah, sounds. Yeah, and where it comes from, like, there's scenes where Ike is holding her to the stomach saying, bring it down, make it come from here. Yeah, absolutely. And I so I think her stage persona is very much this toughness, but then the tension in the film comes from the dichotomy of we see this woman on stage who pre- projects this tough, rough, you know, strength... And then we see a woman who is essentially psychologically manipulated into this kind of passive and trapped kind of character. Yeah. You know, there's a scene in it where Ike tells her to go and get her hair bleached. Mm-hmm. Um, bleached blonde. And uh, very quickly we see that it was a terrible idea. Her hair falls out. And then instead of telling Ike that they're going to wear wigs, they quick she appears at the last minute on stage in very much, I would say, kind of like a... Um, what was that? There's kind of like almost like the a Supremes. Supremes, almost kind of like a Supremes look. And then there's a moment. This this just encapsulates the kind of the the, the quiet nuance that Angela Bassett can actually have in the film, where Ike comes out and he says, "Whose idea was this?" And she's ready to she's ready to like quietly, painfully, carefully explain to him what happened. And she goes, "Well, you see, Ike." And then he says he loves it, and and the mood changes instantly. Yeah, and that's what I guess I'm saying, which really surprised me about this movie. Like, on some of the plot points levels, it's super clunky. And then on these other ones, it just skips over things that you would naturally think would be a scene, like where they come up with the name Tina, or where he hits her for the first time. And so is this kind of weird back and forth between sophistication and obviousness. Isn't there a scene where she says something uh, quite past, like just in passing that really... uh offends him and he, he slaps her but doesn't she say Ike you said you wouldn't do this or something uh, yeah you wouldn't do this again wouldn't do this, yeah. yeah you wouldn't do this again so we know that he's shown uh, an instance of it in the past when we get into the midsection of the movie that's to me when it really took off and I actually probably could have done without some of the kind of build up backstory I mean maybe you need that a little bit but like it was when they were in the midst of this claustrophobic relationship where basically every scene in the oh, middle... Oh, you mean like when they've, when they've already kind of made it? Yeah, they're, they're starting to make it. Although, you know, it's interesting. They seem to be making it on the kind of R&B circuit. Ike's writing the tunes, but you get the sense it's really Tina's voice that makes the act, right? Because yeah. Phil Spector comes and sees them and wants to sing just with Tina. And that really makes Ike um, upset. But what I'm saying is that central section, you basically have two kinds of scenes. These painful domestic scenes, right? And then these supercharged, super physical musical numbers. And there's something about the back and forth of the one from the other that the movie is implying there's this relationship between the way that Tina... It gets all this pain inflicted on her that she then like kind of channels into these performances on stage. So my favorite musical number is the one where they're, I think they're opening for the Stones, maybe not the Stones, but they're in New York. Uh-huh. And Tina's just had a baby and she's exhausted. And uh, she says to Ike, oh, I'm tired, I can't do this. And he shows kind of a moment of aggression where he says, you know, I worked all my motherfucking life for this. Like, I think it's where he, yeah, it's the first time he kind of verbally abuses her, we see yeah. in the film. And then, anyway, she goes on, she goes on stage, the curtain lifts, She's at the mic, he's a few feet behind her, and there's nothing from Tina. 
and he walks backwards towards her very yes, slowly. Yes. And he kisses her on the cheek. And this is actually very much about the psychology of the characters because it's a brilliant it's a brilliant use of a single tear. A single tear goes down her face into her mouth and then she begins a number and she gives it every single thing she has and she sounds amazing. Yeah. And like that tells us so much about the relationship is that like there is a very like do you think that Tina loves Ike in this film? I that I this is the thing, and I think we're highlighted by the fact that it's called "What's Love Got to Do with It?" And with no question mark. Yes, say. we noticed that right at the start. Yeah, I would say love doesn't have a lot to do with this at all. Certainly not from Ike's perspective. But the way that Ike is represented in this movie, I think he sees Tina as a commercial property. I really feel that that's the way that I wrote. It's all business to him. Now, what she sees from him, I don't know. I would say that the kind of psychology of the movie is implying she was abandoned when she was young. We never see a father figure in her life. She latches onto this man almost instantaneously upon seeing him on the stage. And she basically lets him control their finances, even when they become huge superstars and they're getting recognized in diners she has no money in her purse. Yeah. So that part of what makes her so trapped on the scenes where she tries to get away, she tries to get away with her kids. She has to take the bus. She has no money, right? Like, even though she's a big recording star. So I, I think the movie tries to paint her as a woman who is is quite passive and almost infantilized in this relationship. Would, do, do you see what I mean? Like, I don't know if it's about love mm. so much as it's like this strong figure who's claiming that he's protecting her. Yeah, but Brian, it's a film about domestic abuse. Like, I know. Like, you I, know, absolutely. She's, she's trapped. Hi. Come on, come on, come on, come on, take a break. What you talking about take a break? I ain't got no time to take a break. I got to work, man. Huh? I got to write these songs. Sue Records, when motherfuckers been after me about these songs for six months. You know how much money I owe Sue Records? What you mean, owe Sue Records? Much as we work? They always giving you stacks of cash whenever we do a show. I, I know I don't spend it. Oh, no? But what about what, what, all them wigs and, and wardrobe and whatnot you got in the back there, huh? What about the way you got this place that down, huh? All this furniture, that fish tank, this, 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 the sofas, this fountain and shit. That shit costs money, anime. I got to pay the girls and I got to pay the band. And on top of that, I'm trying to build us a studio. You know you want the studio. And I'd have it by now. You would sing the songs the way I tell you to sing them, anime. God dang. That's what I've, I've been trying to do, right? I mean, but they all sound like the same, you know? What? I ain't here. What you say? Hmm? I ain't here. I ain't here. What you say? I said, uh, uh, I mean, not exactly, you mm -hmm. know. I mean, but you you do have your own style. Your own style, uh-huh. Uh-huh, what's wrong? I promise you wouldn't. It's always I would even say that in some ways Lawrence Fishburne's acting is... Like, he has a harder time than Angela Bassett because Ike is not likable as such, but defensible sometimes because he's such a victim of himself as well. The scenes in which he comes to threaten her and seems to be like this, like, desperate man, it makes you think to yourself, this isn't just a monster. This is a character who we're supposed to have some kind of sympathy for. Do you do you, I mean? Do we expect to see Ike turn around? Well, eventually, no, he doesn't. There's no uh, Ike is a villain. I mean, yeah, and I think Lawrence Fishburne is great, but I don't think I feel sympathy for him 
ever in the film. Not for one but single But do you instant. hope to feel sympathetic for him? No. Never. And this is what I guess I'm trying to say. Like, think about the way that he first comes into the house and approaches the mother. Yeah. He hands the mother money. Yeah, wad of cash. Almost like he's paying for Tina. And this is what I'm saying, like... From the beginning, it's not just the guitar of doom that's making us say, watch out, girl. It's it's him. He's yeah. like a wolf. He's a seducer. Now, he's a very well-performed... I mean, it's great. I mean, I think it's a real portrait of sort of masculine insecurity, right? Any moment that Tina seems to have um, thoughts of her own, she's appreciated for her own talent as opposed to as an extension of him. He flips out. Right? But, I mean, no, I didn't feel sympathy for him at all. I only later, towards the end of the movie, felt he was pathetic. Like, in that scene. Yeah, like, his power is taken away from him. That scene later, after she's finally decided to leave him. Can Can we talk about Angela Bassett, though, for a bit? I mean, like, you remembered loving this movie. You remembered loving this performance. Did it live up to your memories in terms of what what she's doing on the screen? Absolutely. Why? Well, it's such a physical role. We found out that she actually didn't do her own singing. In that case, her lip syncing is phenomenal. Yeah. (laughs) Brilliant. Yeah. It is such a physical role. You see this physical transformation in her arms. Like, oh my goodness. I know Tina was muscular, but like... She has, like, like... She has muscles and triceps that any gym bunny would die to have in this movie. <laughs> she dances, she, she, you know, it's just, it's an incredible physical performance and, and I think that's often, I think, what we kind of forget in acting is a huge part of it. This is a very physical role. Yeah, and, 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 and physical in a number of different ways. I mean, she does the choreography extraordinarily, but those fight scenes, I mean, I was flinching. I was, I found those so gut-wrenching to watch in a way that, I don't know, movie movie fights and movie portraits of abuse rarely get at that psychological dim- di- dimension or that yeah. real sense yeah, fear. of... Sense of fear and, and what's really going on here, but the way she topples over the sofa in the yeah. first one or, you know, um, ultimately that pivotal scene in the... Um, the limousine. The limousine where she fights back. I mean... You know a scene I love, just in terms of composure is immediately after that scene where they walk into the hotel and they walk in, both of them are, are clearly bleeding. Like, she's really beat up, but he's also bleeding as well. And they walk in with this composure, like... It, oh, it's it's hard to watch because you know that something has happened and they're just trying to get into this room. They're trying to get from the car to the hotel without people stopping them, without people, you know, drawing attention to them. And then there's that moment immediately after where she escapes and she 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 runs across the the highway um, to the Ramada, to the Ramada Inn. Saved. Great great advertisement with the Ramada yeah. Inn, saved by the Ramada. <laughs> and in and that's an incredible moment from Tina. From sorry, from Angela, because she comes up to the clerk and she knows she looks of fright and she says, "I'm Tina," and she says it in this simple way. And you yeah. and again you see this like country girl who's been raised to be polite who's been raised to not cause a fuss and she says I'm Tina Turner I'm supposed to be headlining this big act coming up soon I've been in a fight and I need a place to I've stay I've got 35 cents in my yeah, but I promise that. I will pay you back Yeah. do you think it would have been as good a film if other actors were in the lead 
Well, so we did look this up a bit, and apparently Whitney Houston was considered for this. Yeah. Vanessa L. Williams was considered for this. Yeah, what is the difference between Vanessa Williams and Vanessa L. Williams? It all has to do with the Screen Actors Guild, Sean. If <laughs> they are got different the... people, are they? I think so. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Fact check, fact check. Um, also, apparently, Lawrence Fishburne turned this role down five times. What? Yeah. So they really wanted him. They turned. He turned it down five times. They were about to cast Chris Murphy. Who's that? Who, Eddie Murphy's brother, who you've never heard of. He has a brother. He apparently has a brother. They were about to cast Chris Murphy until Lawrence heard that they were um, casting Angela Bassett. And he said, with her, I'll do it. Um, he really respected her. I guess they worked together on Boys in the Hood, which I had forgotten she was in. And then there's Jackie, who is who is the comp- composite character. She's She was a combination of a few other people to create one fictional person there is that she also i think is, is quite good there's that the, you know that scene that was referenced in that song drunken love which you also remember beyonce had a song drunken love um and that got a bit of flack because there's a line in it that says eat the cake anime which is which is dr- a direct reference from this film so that's the scene in the diner yeah. where they're celebrating some triumph or something their records done well, well it's actually no tina's record has done well. oh is that the phil yeah. Spector record yeah so they're in the diner and these ridiculously blonde 70s just children. The village of the damned is nearby. <laughs> these kids wander out, wander out of it. Wanting her autograph. And I can't deal with the fact that how, how famous she's become and he wants her to eat the cake. Yeah, they say, let's get, get, get the whole cake over and try and celebrate. And he's, she says, get off me like you're high as well. Yeah. We, see a lot of, we see a lot of cocaine use in this film. And he shoves the cake into her face and then there's a... There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a a bit of a, uh, a fight and then he does well, but not thing. just where yeah. he doesn't just hit but he hits but the thing is he hits Jackie um, who's the friend who's the friend and that that's quite a powerful thing because he knocks her clean onto the ground and she says you only have to hit me once like you know yeah. which is a which is a pointed reference to Tina but yeah. also a, quite a quite a you know a powerful moment there saying I know what you're like you only have to do it to me once, never never for me to see you again. And and I have to say, uh, just on Jackie, I knew when you said that one of these characters was a composite figure, it was clear that that's who that was. And I have to say, that going back to the lotus growing out of the mud and the Buddhist chant, I mean... Yeah, so Tina, Tina finds Buddhism in the film. That's a plot point. Yeah, and she finds it because she shows up at Jackie's house. She shows up and instantaneously, Jackie is kind of like... Oh, here Buddhism has helped me a lot. Chant these, chant these words, and that's kind of Tina's mantra as she builds up her own internal strength to get rid of Ike. I mean, much more interesting to me than that scene with the Buddhism is the moment before the Buddhism when Jackie and Tina adopt the voice of Ike. Do you yeah. remember that part? Of course. And yeah. they they speak like Lawrence Fishburne, and they do this kind of mocking impersonation of him, which is like the first time that we've ever seen Tina do anything other than defer to him and it seems funny and then it kind of just tips over into Tina being psychologically horrified and going into the corner well because so that's because Jackie does an impression of like assuming Tina really yeah yeah oh right yeah, yeah you're right she does an impression of Tina saying oh, oh no I, I won't do it again like yeah oh god Angela Bassett yeah, I could give up a dozen Aquila and the Bees for one more of this, please. What are you talking Aquila about? Aquila and the Bee is the movie where she plays the mother of the young girl who's in a spelling bee. Never heard of Never it. Never heard of it. It was everywhere. It was <laughs> everywhere for a while. It was very popular. It sounds like a fable. <laughs> 
the thing about this movie is the sophistication in terms of its portrait of like, you know, for all the the beats that I thought were obvious, the the picture of 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 how someone is manipulated by a partner and why they might stay with them and what it takes to kind of get out of that is Yeah, you understand, you actually yeah. believe that in this cycle of violence a person cannot just walk away. It's hard to do. Lawrence Fishburne is incredibly charismatic in this role. I think my favorite scene of his was that scene in the car at the end or toward the end when Tina's um, kind of building her career back up as a solo act because obviously in their divorce settlement she's allowed him to have everything, all the money, all the royalties, all the songs that he wrote as long as she can escape and she can keep her stage name Tina Turner. He shows up in the parking lot one day and she agrees to sit in the car alone, not to close the you door. You were like, don't get in the car. And then she says, oh, d- door open, door open. I know, I was like, oh, thank God, Tina. But thankfully, she didn't get fully in the car. And then his, his masculine desperation there, he was showing us a portrait of a man who really hated to be anything other than the top dog at, at any point. And then know? she breaks the door, breaks the window. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. With those arms, those arms would break a window, wouldn't oh, they? Oh, my God. I still think the Michelle Obama biopic has to be done. I don't know who would play Barack. Maybe she could play both parts. Or maybe it could be a reteaming. Maybe Lawrence Fishburne could play Barack. They're both older, they're both probably, sexy. than the Obamas, aren't they? Uh, yeah, but they're both sexy enough to play it. Yeah, alright, well, maybe. So, Brian, we both like this film. We both really respected these performances, even if the film... You know, I think it's an example of a film that's got super conventional elements and then super amazing performances. Yeah, I'm won over by the acting. I don't even, not- I don't even notice the... Uh, the plot devices that are obvious because I'm so enamored by both of those actors. Yeah. So searing performances that hold up incredibly. Brilliantly staged musical numbers. Angela Bassett, you were right not to take Monster's Ball. Yeah. I don't want you to demean yourself just to win a gold statue. You've won our You've admiration. Won, and you have the Golden Globe. <laughs> <laughs> so does Pia Zadora, I suppose. <laughs> and... Barbara Streisand did win a Golden Globe over Ingmar Bergman as Best Director. So, you know, enjoy it. (laughs) This is definitely a recommendation. uh, A musical biopic with truly titanic performances. Which brings us to the end of today's episode. Uh, As always, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell everyone that you can, any way that you can. Remember to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review while you're there. And you can follow us on Twitter at BroadAppealPod. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. When I was a little girl, I had a friend of Only dogs I've ever owned. Now I love you just the